got him up uh, and we brought him back overhead. The pointers were vibrating and we sent them in and they flushed this covey of about 15 or 20 birds and greys are different to red partridge. Red partridge don't explode into the earth. They're flushing ones or twos, but this it was just a mass explosion. Uh, and he folded up and we watched him dropping down and dropping down and you could hear the impact that as his bell hit, as he struck the partridge, knocked it over, he threw up and he come down uh, and he, he made into it. Hey, how's it going everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast and this episode also happens to be the start of our next international series which takes place in the UK and I have to start off by mentioning the two falconers who without their help this series wouldn't have been able to happen. The first is Neil Davies from Pursuit Falconry and Conservation Magazine. You've probably heard us promote the magazine on the podcast before, but if you haven't got a chance to check it out yet, I highly recommend it. And the publication is doing a lot to promote the art of falconry across the world. There's always lots of great content in it. So if you haven't subscribed yet, go to pursuitfalconry.co.uk and sign up for your subscription. It's well worth it. The other falconer is one that you've heard on the podcast before, being Simon Tires. He is the author of The Specialist Falcon, and the book is about his personal approach to lowland game hawking. It's been described as being one of the best modern books of our era by a lot of falconers, and is well worth the read. I found this book to be very informative and very enjoyable, and so I highly recommend that you go to thespecialistfalcon.com and pick up a copy, and you can even have the copy signed by Simon as well. So thank you again very, very much, Neil and Simon, for bringing me over and allowing me to help all these falconers from the UK have a voice and share their stories and experiences with the world. I hope you, the listeners, enjoy the series a lot and get something out of it. And thank you very much for all of your continued support and for listening. And with that, we are going to start off this first episode of the international series featuring the UK with Steve Halsall. He is a renowned hood maker and has a lot of cool stories and experiences. So I'm just going to go ahead and turn things over to that conversation with Steve. So here we go. Steve, it's great to meet you. Appreciate you giving me 45 minutes to an hour-ish or however long we, we do this of your time. Just to start off with, where where exactly are you from again? I'm from an area called Southport, which is on the northwest coast. It lies, it's a small seaside resort, great marshlands, great stubble fields for hunting partridge, and it lies between Liverpool and Preston. The northwest is... Um, sort of the centre of the country, if you take it from the top of Scotland down to Cornwall, the northwest region lies right smack bang in the middle. Only a small country, but you know a great country as well. I don't doubt it. From what I've seen so far, it's it's pretty nice. It reminds me a lot of Indiana, to be honest, in a lot of areas, but I wouldn't have thought that coming in, but then I kind of thought the same thing whenever I landed in Germany and, and a couple of the other like Eastern European countries yeah. as well before, but yeah, it's a nice country, nice countryside, um, and a mixture of countryside, especially falcons are concerned. You know, there's some great lowland hawking around this area of partridges and pheasants, 
then you can travel to where I live in the northwest on the Pennine, and there's some great grouse moors. Um, or you can go further down south onto Salisbury Plain and do some rook hawking. So within a small catchment area, you've got a lot of hawking. Do you have the same kind of issues that some of the other falconers that reside in this in this country have as far as finding access to land and stuff or do you have or have you ever had an issue with that it's never been an issue but it's always been difficult uh i started flying hawks in 1972 uh 50 years ago uh, i imported a lana falcon from nigeria and hunted on the marshlands uh the place has changed, you know, some of the big shoots have closed down and they've gone into smaller syndicates and it's always dif- difficult to get on land that's being shot over. The game's prized by the guns and they're paying a good quality price to shoot this stuff. Sometimes they don't want falconers wandering around the place, but usually when we've got on the land, they see that, you know, it's very little impact that the falcons or the hawks cause. So we usually welcome back. And there's a few of us now who are putting birds down ourselves with form syndicates some of us go up to scotland grouse hawking um, and th- there's lots of hawking to be had you've just got to look for it it's always interesting talking to other falconers that have been around this area and uh, so far i've really only gotten a chance to really talk at length with with simon tires and jose sudo and and um you know talking to them about how and and other people that kind of you know met in passing or whatever yeah it's just it's interesting how, I guess, privatized a lot of the, the land has. So, I mean, in the U.S., we're used to having a lot of access to public lands sure. and, and stuff, too. So I always find it fascinating, you know, talking to other falconers around this area, especially that have other experiences or, or I mean, I know it's difficult for everybody, but, you know, I mean, that, that don't have an issue, you know, with as much as others with sure. that. So yeah. In the early days, it was it was a lot easier in, in the case that there weren't as many falconers about. Captive breeding hadn't really started then. So we were obtaining birds under license. And I can remember when I, I first decided that I wanted to get into falconry. Um, and I used to go to my local library and there was only two books. And, you know, now you can go online and you can research anything. You know, if you want to see sage grouse hawking, you click on the button and you can see sage grouse hawking. Mm-hmm. You want to go... Red grouse hawking in Scotland, you can click on a button and you can see red grouse hawking. But in them days, it was difficult. Um, and I can remember thinking, I'd really like to get to know somebody who was actually participated in falconry and could mentor me, but it was difficult because there was no one around in my area. And, and I can remember I used to go to the library. I worked quite close to it. And there was two books you could get. And there was uh, The Goshawk by T.H. White, which doesn't help your falconry skills. But there was a great book called The Manual of Falconry by um, Michael Woodford. And that become my Bible, really. But I can remember I used to go in and read it in my dinner hour and then put it back on the shelf. And it become a bit of an obsession, really. I'd, I'd even go in and have a look at the dates when people had taken this book out. And I, I thought, wow, there's another guy in Southport of a lady who's interested in falconry. It's not only me, you know, but I couldn't make contact with him. I, it, it become, I suppose, sort of stalking. I even put a note in the book once and said, please... If you're interested in falconry, contact me because I feel the same. Nobody got back in touch with me, I'm afraid to say. But uh, as the years went on and I got to know more people from the British Falconers Club that I joined, 
uh, and then captive breeding come along and that opened the door for a lot of people a lot of people who'd wanted to participate in the sport but had never had the opportunity to get a bird under license it they become available to them and that that changed falconry massively in this country whereas the area i live in now southport for from about 72 to 1980 i was more than likely the only practicing falconry falconer in that area and now there might be 20 guys in that area, which is good, you know, it's good to get together with them all, but it's uh, it comes back to that access to land then, you know, it's being, the cake's being cut up into 20 pieces now, not into one piece, so sure, it brings its problems. Oh, I don't doubt it. And I mean, I know how hard it is to find good spots and the number of good spots decrease every passing year to, yeah. to development, construction, yeah. you name it. You know, yeah. and and uh, and so I always am just ecstatic whenever we're able to find other spots because, I mean, once you start getting X amount of of hawks in the field, sometimes you've got guys that that'll bring more than one bird, and you just start running out of spots. Next thing you know, you're getting into fist fights, you know, trying to compete <laughs> for a uh, you know for bunnies and yeah <laughs> and, and uh, yeah. So I mean, no, that's that's good though that you even though you've had some issues, you still have places to, to hunt and yeah. have access. So. Yeah, there's, there's, there's places we couldn't go at one time that have now opened up to us, you know, because, like I said, some of the larger shoots in the area um, that have closed down and they've been put into syndicates now, the farmers who farm the land form their own syndicates and they sell off the shooting. It's a lot easier now to get on that sort of land than it was on the bigger states. Uh, but we're where I love to hawk, hawk, hawk ducks on the marshlands, that's all nature reserved now, so by the RSPB, so we're not allowed on there, which is a shame because, you know, very little impact we cause to the birds, as you know, uh, and we used to have some great duck hawking out there. But these things are sent to try us, Jonathan. They're sent to try us. <laughs> that they are, that they are. Well, I'm glad that, um, man, 50 years, that's a long time. I'm glad that you've kept your, yeah. your I don't know, if you, I, I guess for you, it's probably an obsession as well. An I'm obsession <laughs> indeed. Do you know what my mum said? When I was 15, <laughs> I'd gone to a, a place called the Welsh Mountain Zoo to watch the falconry display. And when, when I come back from there, I've been infested with falconry. <laughs> and I have been ever since and proud to say so. Nice, nice. So that was your kind of um uh, your origin story, so to speak. Was that the what initially got you yeah. bit by the bug? Yeah, it, I don't know how really I come into it because um I come from a background of you know, not a hunting family at all. Um my brother was into football. Um uh, me my dad really didn't have an interest in many things about going to the pub for a pint and playing dominoes. <laughs> so uh for me to get this this uh this obsession with falconry, I don't know where it come from. I can remember on a school trip, my my first memory of falconry, I was eight and we went to this place again called the Welsh Mountain Zoo. And they had falconry displays there. And there was a, f a famous falconer who's passed away now, but he was the head falconer there, a guy from Hungary called Laurent de Bastiai. And he's written a few books. And he's a really colourful guy. And I can remember going there, and we went around the corner and come to a big lawn and there was umpteen falcons eagles hawks must have been thrifty birds on there and there was two falconers there was Laurent de Bastiai and a guy called Harry Robinson and they run the falconry section at the zoo and I was mesmerized by it and, and especially the hoods these hoods on the birds I'd I'd seen some old old movies with you know 
James Robertson Justice and a few others in uh, and seeing these hooded falcons on guys' fists going nights going out into the field and uh, you know I thought it was very romantic and watching these birds being flown was superb but it was something that I thought had died out centuries ago until suddenly you know we're at the Welsh Mountain Zoo and I'm there in the middle of this falconry lawn looking at these these hooded falcons which fascinated me um, so yeah that's when it started I was eight at the time uh, and then, you know, it progressed. Uh, it sort of lay dormant for a while. When I go, when I come back from there, I didn't think, right, I'm going to go and get myself a falcon. But it always stayed with me. Uh, and then we read a book at school, A Kestrel for a Knave. And that's got lots of falconry in it. And then the film come out in this country called Kez. And I watched that at 14. And that's when I decided I wanted to get myself a hawk. Uh, and the following year I did. And... And we've had birds with us ever since. Nice, nice. Okay, so you've been doing this, like we just mentioned, for a very long time. Yeah. So do you think that the evolution of your falconry and has kind of gone in line some with the evolution of falconry in general in, in this country? Or do you think that, you know, there's been a lot of unique changes to the way you do things as opposed to just kind of how things have gone over time or. Yeah. Um, I'm a dinosaur <laughs> looking at some of these guys now, you know, with the drones and the GPSs and you got to remember back to 1972 when I got the first bird, we had a bell on its tail and that's how we had to find the things and <laughs> many were lost. Uh, and I lost a, a particularly good Falcon one year and had I ever had telemetry, I'd have, I'd have recovered it. So things have changed, you know, um, and for the better. There's some great falconers about, flying some great falcons. Some young guys are coming through and they amaze me. Um, and they've got that enthusiasm. I can see it there inside them in their eyes. You know, they've got that passion for the sport. And I love that. I love seeing it. Uh, not as many young guys are around flying hawks in this country as they used to be. The club I'm in, the British Falconers Club, we did a survey about 10 years ago of the membership to see what they'd want out of the club. You know, did they want the newsletters? Did they want uh, the journal? Did they want field meets? Uh, whatever they wanted, you know, we filtered all this. But from all the, the information that we collated, the outstanding fact was the membership was getting older and we didn't have as many young people coming in. So it was dying out and, you know, that's what we've got to change. Yeah, and, and there's good and, and bad ways at times of going about that too because you don't, you know, everybody wants to bring people into the uh, the sport and the heritage that are going to represent it well. And, you know, there's there's always, you know, you're always looking for, for the, the best candidates to, to kind of pass on the knowledge to and, and all. I'm sure that isn't any different here than, than anywhere else, I bet, right? I think so. I think wherever you go in the world, you know, there's a, there's guys who are, who are coming into the sport and want to learn about it. I think, I think the beneficial thing they've got now is the internet. You know, if I'd have had the internet when I was 15 and I could have contacted people, it would have made it a lot easier for me to get into falconry. Now, whether that had made me a better falconer, I don't know, because, you know, you learn from your mistakes sometimes, don't you? Sure. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, it's, it's it swings and roundabouts. It's, it, you know, the way it, the 
it's evolved, it's good in some ways with captive breeding. You know, there was, there was at one time when we never thought we'd have a peregrine falcon again to fly in. You know, now there's loads of peregrine falcons to fly in that have been bred in captivity. Um, but I don't know whether it makes better falconers or worse falconers. Um, I, you know, some guys start off and then they fall out of falconry and then a few years later, because life changes things, doesn't it? You know, kids come along and mortgages and jobs and and all sorts. Uh, but the, the, the true falconers stick at it and they don't fall by the wayside. Uh, I've got some good friends who, who I've fought with for many years and, you know... I still think of myself as one of the young guys in the falconry club, really, but I'm not, you know, one of the older guys now. Uh, but I, I like seeing the younger ones. And, you know, there's some great falconers out there that some of these guys are flying really high-flying falcons, which we never dreamed of. We never thought we'd see the falconry that we see at the moment in this country. It is fantastic. Um, so, yeah, falconry is going in the right direction. Yeah, I'm glad that it's going in the right direction here, too. I mean, I, I'm... Like I said, I'm, I'm really glad that there are a lot of other people kind of coming up in this, these newer generations that seem to be like you described, you know, really enthusiastic, yeah. really passionate. And that's when you know that people are usually right for the sport and the, yeah. and the heritage aspect of it all is because generally someone who's that passionate and, you know, just that ate up with it is going to want to represent You everything mean when well. they're infected like me? Yes, yes. I mean... <laughs> Any of us that are that are nuts enough to continue to do this decade in and and you know year year in and in your case decade oh, yeah. year in and out you know it's it's uh yeah I mean you're either ate up with it or it seems like you're you're just kind of not there's usually not any in between and for the for the guys that that seem to kind of have that in between those are the ones that you see usually just kind of falling off yeah they you know? fall by the wayside yeah. yeah you know yeah. my wife said to me once I can remember a particularly difficult sake of falcon that I was starting to train and this bird really frustrated me. I'd handled many hawks by the time this one which had been bred in captivity come into my hands. It was, you know, a beautiful bird, Altai Saker, um, everything going for it, uh, but its temperament was really, really bad. And one evening when I come out and we were, you know, the training was going backwards. We weren't going forwards with this bird. We were going backwards. The thing wouldn't even sit on my fist hooded now, let alone <laughs> feed. And I can remember coming out of the muse and, <laughs> and I can remember headbutting the wall in frustration. <laughs> and that's when my wife said to me, do you, do you not think it's time you try to get rid of that bird and perhaps get another one <laughs> but I persisted with it you know and I tried a, a completely different technique I got I got in touch with a friend who's flown a lot of sakers over the years uh, and he said why don't you try this Steve and uh, I tried the technique that he showed me and it worked you know so we, we can all learn things can't we I've, I've been handling birds for perhaps 25 30 years and yet I went to this other guy who'd been doing it half as long as me, but he'd flown a lot more sakers than I had. And he said, why don't you try this way? And I give it a go. And yeah, things things popped into place and I didn't headbutt any more walls. Yeah, you never know. I mean, that's why anybody that thinks that just because they haven't been in it for very long, that they don't have necessarily something to offer, you, you just never know. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can always learn something and you know, every new bird is a new experience for sure. So, yeah, yeah, but so, I mean, is, is being around is, and practicing, you know, falconry as long as you have, what have been some of the, the changes that you've seen take place 
in this country with the different rules, regulations, and, and, um, you know, just the, the types of, you know, just the access to birds, all that stuff. Well, well, the, as, as we've said, the access to birds got better with captive breeding, you know, mm. the, the captive bred babes, we, you, you could have any falcon you want. Now, in, in the early days, we were just breeding sakers and lanners and peregrines, and then, you know, AI in coming to the country. I remember meeting up with Jim Weaver and he was explaining to us about the techniques of AI in and a few of my friends started doing that. And we produced some nice prairie peregrines. I flew one of them. They were they were great birds. Um, and and any crosses, you know, you can get now whatever whatever you is it, you know designer falcons really I suppose. But I've got nothing against designer falcons if they're looked after properly and they're flown properly. You know, no problems whatsoever. I like pure breeds myself, uh, particularly Tearsel peregrines. I think they're really well matched to English partridge that we fly in this country. So looking at the bird situation, it, you know, that's gone forward. In 1981, the Wildlife and Sun Countryside Act come into force in this country and all birds had to be registered uh, and inspected, uh, a little bit more legislation. But yeah, that was good for the sport too. It made sure that people were keeping the birds properly and doing things in the right way. Uh, but then licensing has come in now, you know, depending what type of bird you want to fly, you have to apply and apply for a license. If you want to go lark hawking with a merlin, you have to apply for a, a license for, for larks, which will be granted by the, the uh, DEFRA if you're lucky enough. Um, if you want to fly a sparrowhawk at blackbirds, you can get a license for that. All, all game birds, you know, are legitimate quarry anyway. Uh, and then you need different licenses to fly rooks and crows and seagulls uh, and the vermin species, I suppose. Um, I don't do that. I just just do game hawking. So there's, a, you know, there's there's a lot more legislation and red tape involved in it now. But, it, it you know, it can be achieved. You just got to fill the forms in and make sure you do it properly. And, and there's no problem. Sure. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm where there's a will, there's a way, I yeah, guess, right? definitely. Well, I mean, as far as just the, the ability to... The, the way you acquire birds, I mean, was there ever a point in time whenever you were starting or even like as things evolved over time? I mean, were you re ever able to take passage birds or anything like that? Yeah, or? yeah. We, um, in 72, in when, I, when I obtained my first bird, it was a Lana Falcon and I in, imported her from Nigeria, or him, I should say, it was a Lanaret. And that was under license. Uh, you had to write to the Home Office in Whitehall in London, put your application in for, for the bird, say who you got to sponsor you, you know, to mentor you, uh, and send, send the application off. Um, and then it went in front of a board, uh, which was made up of falconers, vets, and other people, and they looked at the applications and saw, looked who was really uh, a good at um, good candidate for taking the bird and if you were lucky you, you got your license so that's how we got mo older most of the birds by that time there was very few licenses being um processed for british peregrines because of ddt they'd taken a hammering in the wild and the breeding numbers had really fallen as with most birds of prey but you could still get the license to import the birds from far afield from like i say lots we had lots of birds coming in from africa from Nigeria, we had Lanners and we had Red Nape Shaheens. And then there was a couple of companies in India who we dealt with. One was called Dar and Dar. 
and they were exporters of saker falcons and black shaheens and red-headed merlins so we had birds coming in from them we were also getting birds from a, a company called Mohammed Din and Co and he was a really famous hawk, hawk trapper in Pakistan uh, and he also was famous for making Lahore bells uh, but you could get birds off Mohammed Din and Co so there was, there was birds coming into the country not enough birds to meet the demands as people who were coming along who wanted to fly them um, but then getting towards the mid 70s the late 70s we were break, making the breakthroughs then with breeding lana falcons and sakers and then in 81 we got licenses for peregrines again which we took out the wild um, and we went on to breed from them and the rest as they say now is history we uh, we become self-sufficient funnily enough some of the pre protectionist lobbies when we when we wanted to get these birds under license the peregrines to breed them they uh, they were completely against it and saying no no you you know you, you you can't possibly breed from these birds the two wild and the two this and the two the other and then but we did get some and we started breed them and now when we want the licenses again even though they have issued a few in the last couple of years the protectionists say well why do you want to take these birds out the wild you know you're breeding them now so it was a two-edged sword um but yeah it's it's good it's it's a great it's a fascinating sport no doubt massive part of my life and my family's life as well yeah uh, we love it yeah i mean it's just the massive amounts of history just from country to country is just fascinating in and of itself yeah. even if you even if you aren't interested in in practicing there's just so much it's such a rich history yeah and yeah i mean it, it can be impactful. I mean, we were talking earlier about, you know, you mentioned the whole family aspect. I mean, my family tolerates it. Uh, <laughs> my, my son and, and doesn't really care. My wife, she doesn't really like birds, but she tolerates it because yeah. she knows I like it. But in, in that aspect of it, you know, the impact on each individual person and family is fascinating too, I think. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. In my family life, you know, the, all the kids have got, I've got five kids and They've all been brought up around falcons and hawks and, you know, they don't even bat an eyelid when, when they walk into the house or there's, you know, a, a falcon or a hawk sat around somewhere. And my wife enjoys it as well. She, she helps me man the birds. Um, so, yeah, but I don't really think they realise what's going on now. They're that used to it. It's, a, it's part of the fabric of our life, having these birds in front of us. Um, a bit different when a boyfriend or one of the girlfriends comes around, you know, and this, sees this falcon sat sat on the back of a chair somewhere. You, you don't see that everywhere, do you? So, but <laughs> yeah. but they are warned about it before they come. A story to tell you is about when I when I was thirteen or fourteen and I wanted to get me this kestrel. I decided I was going to go and find a kestrel's nest and and take a kestrel and train it. Um, and I told my mum about it and she wasn't too keen and my grandma was completely against it because she'd seen a film called The Vikings and Kurt Douglas and Tony Curtis was in it and Tony Curtis throws this goshawk at Kurt Douglas and it rips his eye out so me, <laughs> my grandma thought I was going to get my eyes ripped out by this kestrel uh, and she, my mum was called Elizabeth but uh, for short Betty and she said oh Betty don't let him get this kestrel it'll take his eyes out <laughs> but luckily my eyes are still here to sew the hoods <laughs> that's awesome so you was that your first bird or you talk a little bit about the what how you kind of learned and and who mentored you if anyone in yeah. particular mentored you and, and just go talk a little bit more about your in, introduction bit, and, yeah, and okay. your, your your 
yeah, beginning history. Okay, well, the early days, I was uh, looking for castle nests and I found one. And they were few and far between because of DDT, you know, in, in that bird chain, the kestrels were affected like peregrine falcons and everything else. But we, uh, a keeper on the, one of the estates near to me, I put the word out that I was looking for this kestrel. Uh, and this uh, a friend at school said his dad knew where there was a kestrel's nest, uh, like called John Johnson, who was a local gamekeeper. So I went to see Johnny Johnson and he said, yeah, you need to go down to um, the Fernwood, as it's called. There's a kestrel nest in there. Uh, he says, because if you don't take one, I'm going to kill them anyway. So yes. the gamekeeper wasn't too pleased having the kestrels on his land, even though they did no damage. Right. So, yeah, we went down there. We found, we located the nest and I took it and I took it home and I'd, I'd already set my muse up. I'd read the book, The Manual of Falconry. Um, as I said, there was only two books to read then back in, in that day. You know, falconry wasn't as popular, so there hadn't been as many books written. But Manual of Falconry is a good book. Michael Woodford, the author, become a close friend. He died a few years ago, but uh, the way he explained how you needed to set your muse up, you know, a darkened room with your screen perch um, and get your kestrel, take it at a certain age. And I just followed the rules of the book. You know, we got we got the kestrel home. It wasn't fully fully down then, so I left it in a room on its own and just popped food in so it didn't see me. I didn't want it to imprint and scream. Uh, then one night we went in with a torch and we checked its deck feathers and they were hard pens. So, you know, the story began, got the kestrel. It had been jessed up by this time, but put a swivel and a leash on it. Didn't have a hood at this moment in time, but the manual of falconry didn't say that you needed a hood anyway. So for a kestrel, so I decided that I was going to train it without a hood. So did the usual things, you know, sat in the darkened room with a candle in one corner and a kestrel on my fist in the other and a bit of meat in my hand and the kestrel obeyed off my fist and it'd blow the candle out and it was absolutely pandemonium. But I, I just persevered and slowly the kestrel come around, you know, started feeding on my fist and just went through the, the, the basic things with it, you know, manning, taking it everywhere. And then it come to the time when he decided I wanted a hood for this bird because I... I'd looked at the manual of falconry and there was hooded falcons in that. The kestrel wasn't hooded, but there was peregrines and sakers and lanners hooded. So I decided I was going to make a hood, which wasn't the easiest thing to do. But luckily, at that time, I'd started work at upholsterers and we were using a lot of leather and sewing different part, things of furniture. So I went into work and I had a, a, a talk with one of the guys and he said, yeah, I think we can make one of these, but you need a pattern. So I said, right, well, I'll try and get a pattern. Well, there was no patterns in the Manual of Falconry, but there was a book called A Hawk for the Bush by Jack Mavrigodato that was printed in 1966. So I went to, and that had hood patterns in it. I've been told by somebody else, you get a hood pattern from that book. So I went to the library and I ordered the book. They didn't have it in stock at my local library, but there was one in a place called Wakefield, which was in Yorkshire, so they ordered it from there and it took several weeks to come and the book come and at the back of it, anybody who's read A Hope for the Bush by Jack Mavrigodato know there's a, a section at the back that's full of hood patterns. So the big day come and the book arrived and I couldn't wait to get home and when I opened it up, somebody cut all the hood patterns out the back of the book. <laughs> so that was a bit of a disaster. But by this time, I'd met a few other guys or, or spoke to them on the phone and there was one who lived not too far from me a place called Blackpool, which is across 
the pond from where I live, Southport, there's a big bay and Blackpool lies on the other area. Uh, and if you could w walk across the sands, which you can't because you get cut off by the tide, it's eight miles, but a round trip is 48 miles. So, you know, I was 15 and didn't have a car. Obviously, I wasn't old enough to drive or have a motorbike, so I had to get a bus to Blackpool. And I went over to see this guy, Terry Pickford, who'd, who'd got Falcons. And I'd spoke to him a few times and he gave me a pattern for a Kestrel. So I took it home, got on the bus, went 48 miles back the other way. So I travelled like 96 miles to get this hood pattern, but it was worth it. The best trip I've ever had in my life. <laughs> got it home, got the hood pattern, took it into work. We made our first hood and it was pretty good. I was impressed with it. Um, you know, the other upholsterers helped me to do it and it looked good. And that's how it all started, as to say. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, you, as far as who mentored you though, I mean, who, who flying birds, mm -hmm. I mentored myself really gotcha. uh, up until in step from 72 to 75, I'd, I'd flown the Kestrel and then hacked it back to the wild. And then I'd applied for my license to get the Lana Falcon. Uh, and then when I got the Lana Falcon, there was a guy in Southport who'd, who'd been away from home. He'd been at police college training to be a policeman. Uh, but Ian Beecham, he was called, he'd had Falcons in years gone by and he decided that he'd give me a hand, a leg up, show me what to do. And really, Ian, not so much mentoring going out in the field every day and flying the bird with me, but he was at the end of a phone and if I could say, well, the bird's doing this or the bird's doing that, uh, he'd sort of push me in the right direction and say, well, try this, Steve, or try that, Steve. Uh, but most of it, it was done on my own, you know, learned from my mistakes, really. Yeah. Uh, and then, about 1976, I joined the British Falconers Club uh, and got to know loads of guys then around the northwest. Even though there wasn't a lot of people in my town, uh, there was a couple of guys in Liverpool that was sort of, what, from where I lived, 20 minutes away, or in the other direction towards Preston. I met the guy who, who's really um, changed my life in falconry completely, a, a man called Paul Fields. And he was the the uh, the last honorary president of the British Falconers Club, and luckily for me, he only lived twelve miles away. But that you got to remember, Jonathan, these were them were days before the internet, so he could have been you know twenty twelve miles or twelve hundred miles. You, you just didn't know he was there. But we made the contact, and I went down to a British Falconers Club meeting and introduced myself to him, and we got chatting, and I showed him one of the hoods, and he was very impressed with it. Uh, and he said, you think me, you could meet me a couple of hoods? So I said, yeah. And, and we struck up a, a lifelong relationship. Uh, and Paul was really my mentor. He, he, he taught me about rearing game birds, uh, putting birds on the land, you know, running pointers, uh, flying tearsels. Uh, and that's what we did between us for 25 years until he died. Relationships like that and falconry are, are hard to come by. Yeah. And I totally understand wanting to or you know valuing and appreciating it's another one of those things where it's kind of like whenever you end up having this amazing bird right and yeah. then unless you've had a few bad birds first it's really hard to appreciate the fact that you have an amazing one and, yeah. and until it's gone you don't you don't really <laughs> know, know which, what you had you know you it's yeah don't know what you got till it's gone that yeah. kind of thing same thing with relationships too yeah and Fortunately, I haven't had to, you know, lose any of those relationships yet. Um, there's, there's several guys that 
I've been fortunate enough to meet and have helped me out over, yeah. over my short career thus far, definitely short compared to yours, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that, that time for me is still a long way away. Let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. Every year, you know, more guys who I know from the Falconry fraternity pass away this year. We've lost three dear friends. Um, you know, you don't realize you're getting old sometimes until, the, <laughs> until you get invited to more funerals and weddings. And this is what happens as you get older, you know, people die, uh, but you've got, you've got the memories, haven't you? You, you treasure them close sure. friends that hurt with, you know, had fun with, had fights with, fallen out with, you know, over different things, but we've all got that passion, passion. We've all been infected by falconry. Mm -hmm. Yep. Indeed. That's a good way of putting it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to replace any of that. Yeah. And yeah, even, even though whenever you have knocked down drag out sometimes or whatever, <laughs> you still kind of come back together because you know that you all share the, this common interest oh, and, yeah. and, um, you just kind of get over it and move on. Some know? of the guys <laughs> you meet along the way, you know, we've met today and we've had a good time chatting and different things, but looking back over the years, um, in the early, well, the late seventies, we, we hosted a field meet in the northwest region of the British Falconers Club and we, we used to invite some guests over from Germany and you know I've, I've stayed a lifelong friend with one of them but the, you know the, the customs they did were far different to what I was I, my job was to pick them up from a hotel in, in the middle of a city called Preston to go take them to the hunting fields so we were looking after the birds you know we got the birds in the vans and then I drove down to the to the hotel in Preston to pick these guys up and they come out and they've, you know, they've got hunting horns and seven o'clock in the morning, it's a ritual in Germany, they blast the hunting horns and they're blasting the hunting horns outside this hotel and the guys in the hotel don't know what the hell's going on, you know, <laughs> got these guys in like leather pantyhose blowing horns with, with hats on their heads with feathers in them outside. <laughs> Very strange, but good, good friends. One of them, a guy called Ralph Jackensby, uh, he doesn't practice falconry anymore, but, you know, I spent many a time with him in Scotland, flying birds up there and in the Northwest um, and never went out to Germany. That's one, that's one thing I've regretted. You know, I've never traveled as much as I should have to see some, some great falconry because I've, I've had lots of invites, you know, I've got friends in the States, uh, some who were out in the Gulf, uh, a guy who's out in Canada and people have always said, come on, Steve, come out here and, and practice a bit of hawking out here. And I've never got around to it, but as, as I'm getting older now and I'm, you, you know, I'm retired now, these things are coming my way and I will start doing it. You know, I'm going to go out to the Gulf and see Al Hubar Resort and I will go out to Canada and go out with my friend and watch his Peel's Falcon catching ducks and I'll go over to the States as well and maybe even knock on your door, John. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey? Anytime. And we'll go out hawking together. Just give me a little bit of notice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, our, our hawking is, uh, it can be a little down and dirty sometimes, yeah. you know, with, um, getting in the in the brush and and uh you know wading yeah, through that that's it's gonna be, good be pretty but i'm and i'm sure it's nothing that you wouldn't love and i'll and, get in there you just point me in the right <laughs> direction you, you can work me like a, a, a pointer I'll, <laughs> I'll get in there and i'll work to the whistle and i'll stop when you put your hand up and i'll bolt them out whichever way you want me to but yeah well, you you have to make sure to to make them run the right way because if not, you'll get you'll get an earful. I'm telling oh, you, in yeah, our group. yeah. I've, I've, I've been told off a few times in my early career. You know, um, Paul Fields, the guy I was talking about, we 
it's a it, it, we'd have the dog on point and I had a pup a pointer then and we got it to honor the point and he wanted me to head the point get in front of the dogs to block the way for the for the partridge to get off the field so I went right around and I was blocking them I was the block and they were on the, and I could see he was shaking his hands and waving his fist and because I'd not gone into the right position you know but <laughs> it's all character building isn't it and it's you know I got a good telling off or a bollocking as as my teacher would call it but yeah it, it stuck with me and it, it it you know it served me well I, I learned my apprenticeship well, that's, yeah, that, that's why I was always, I'm, I'm always so curious to hear what people's initial experiences are because yeah. I just want to keep hearing that they got yelled at as much as I did <laughs> and, you know, other people yeah. do and stuff. So, and then but once you, it's, it's fun though, cause you know, once you, uh, get to be a, a, a little bit more experienced and stuff, then, then you get to, to give the next guy crap yeah. too, you know, yeah, it's all I, part of it. Yeah, it's but, not, not for the faint of heart by any stretch. Well, nah. and that's <laughs> Falconry, isn't it? You know, it's such a demanding hobby. When people say to me, you know, I've loads, you know, I'd like to become a falconer and, you know, I'd say, well, you know, it's, there's a lot to it. It's, it's not like a gun or a rod. You can put it away in a cupboard and leave it for six months if you don't want to do it. Or, you know, it's not like having a dog if you want to go on holidays. There's not that many people who look after a falcon for you. Uh, and I, I really try to put people off, but I encourage them as well. You know, I, I take them out with me to fly the birds and show them about equipment and the husbandry of it. Uh, and, yeah, there's quite there's quite a few who do, who do fall by the wayside. And, and there's quite a few guys who I've met along the way who haven't got into it, but I still see them now and again, and they ask me how the birds are. And I'm really glad that they didn't take the sport up. But every now and again, you get one who comes along and he sticks at it, and it's a good feeling. You know, there's a guy now uh, who lives in the, in the south of the country who rings me every now and again, and he's got a successful peregrine, and I helped him with his early birds to train them. And it feels good to know that I've passed that on. The art has been passed on another generation to a younger guy. Sure. And that makes me feel good. Sure. Well, I mean, it's it's all part of the weeding out process, you know. I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily because you're doing it because um – you know, you want to be hateful or you want to be mean or whatever, but yeah. I mean, people, people need to know that it's serious and, and, yeah. uh, you know, it's all at the end of the day, it's, it's all mostly in, in good fun and stuff anyway, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but you know, I mean, people, people need to have thick skin and, and, uh, well, yeah. you know, you gotta, you gotta take stern direction sometimes because yeah. otherwise, you know, bird may die, you know, if you yeah. don't do something right. Yeah, so. that's very true. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's great though. I mean, that's, that's interesting that you were another one of these guys that were mostly self-taught initially and then did have some degree of mentorship later and stuff. But I don't know about you mentioning that, you know, you retired now, so you have more free time. I mean, just judging by that table in there, (laughs) it doesn't look like you got a whole lot of free time on your hands with all the hoods and and everything that you've made. We make a few hoods along the way and (laughs) everything else. And yeah, I I enjoy doing it. It's a, it's been a big part of my life making hoods. Uh, Just, you know, it's, it's like, you feel, every hood you make, you feel like you've achieved something. And most of the people who the hoods go to, the friends, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I enjoy it. I'm very lucky to do what I do. Yeah, I mean, talk a little bit about, you know, some of that mentorship again. Like I said, as far as that specifically, how long do you feel like it took you before you really were, were competent and, you know, started making hoods that you really felt were super, like, usable? Yeah, it's... Um it didn't take that long, to be honest. Um, it, the Anglo-Indian hoods that didn't have to be formed on a block, 
that they were fit pretty easy. You know, me, me stitching was good because I was an upholsterer and we had the right sort of leather, Moroccan calf I was using, which made nice Anglo-Indian hoods. Funnily enough, you can't get hold of that Moroccan calf that we were using in them days. Most of the tanneries in this country have shut down now. Uh, but you, there's a few places where you can get half decent stuff from. Uh, so to make, from start to finish, I'd say I started when I was 15 making my first hood. By the time I was 16, I, could, I was pretty competent at making a hood, an Anglo-Indian hood anyway. Um, and then it evolved into making the block hoods, the Dutch hoods. The, the hardest part then was uh, getting older the hood blocks. It's a, it's, it's a completely different world now. If, if, I, if I was starting up in, in hood making again now, I'd just get, go on the internet and find out where, where there'd be some hood blocks and, you know, research a bit about the guy who made them and buy them hood blocks and buy the patterns and you're away making them when i was starting out th there was no hood blocks well there were hood blocks there was mullen hood blocks which had been used by the the mullen family in holland for trapping hawks and i managed to get hold of a set of them from a guy called uh, anthony jacks who was president of the british falconry club and we got i got them copied uh, and that's where the early hoods I was making, the Dutch hoods, they come off them blocks. And you can still make good hoods off them blocks, you know. They served the Mullen family well for 80-odd years, and, and they served me well for quite a few years. But then, um, you know, my hoods evolved into how I thought they should be. Um, I had a, a friend who was a tool maker, a pattern maker, and we... We sort of divide, had the Mullen blocks and how we'd, you know, we built them a little bit up with plastic in certain places and, and changed this and tweaked that. And that went on for about a good three or four years before I got the hood blocks that I wanted to use. And, and them are what, them, they are what I've been using for the last 20, 30 years. Um, and they've served me well. Uh, but yeah, not not long. You know, there's there's a few young guys now who who have started making hoods, and I, I help I help them along the way if I can. And th there's one in particular who, who's getting very. In fact, he's getting too good, getting too good at making their hoods. Uh, and he, he's been doing them for now about perhaps two years, two and a half years, and he's he's producing a good hood. It's like anything, you know, it, it takes time and it takes practice. And and the key element is is wanting to do it, you know. It's like when you want to be a falconer, you've got to stick at it, you know. All the tribulations and, and downfalls from it all. It's the same with hood making or, or any any art you go into, you know. You've just got to practice. Practice. My maths teacher told me, Mr. Holsell, practice will make perfect. <laughs> and then words ring through in my ears as today. Anything you want to be good at, you got to practice, 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 yeah. and just keep keep trucking on. And, and I think it's having that passion too, Jonathan, isn't it? Mm. It's that yeah. wanting to do it, you know. Um, like I say, there's a couple of good guys now who are making hoods, uh, and they will get better as they get older, you know. They will get better at their art, no doubt about it. Uh, and hopefully by that time, I'll have finished making us. Uh, but it's nice to know that people are coming through who want to do it as well, that it's not going to die out. You know, I, I, as we spoke today about a couple of guys in the States who you know and I, you know, I've had conversations with, and them guys are getting old as well. And I hope, you know, we, we should pass the, these techniques and this art on we've got to other people. You know, we mustn't let it die. Oh, I agree because I can't make them. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I, I don't have the, as we were talking earlier, I don't have the, 
uh, patience, time or energy to devote to that. I mean, I mean, I, I'm not a very crafty or, yeah. or artsy guy in that way. So I'm more than happy to, to pay and support other, yeah. other falconers and that, that love doing it or are good at it. And I really don't want those people to, to stop doing it because, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm going to need hoods. So yeah, <laughs> yeah but it, times are good now. Um, but like we said earlier, you know, in 1972, you, you couldn't, you know, get on the internet and order an hood. Or, or the, there was nobody making them. There was two people in this country who, who sold hoods professionally in the early 70s, and that was a, a guy called Roger Upton, who was a renowned falconer who passed on a few years ago. Uh, and Roger's given me a lot of help along the way. Uh, and there was another guy called Philip Glacier who run the falconry centre at New Ent, and he, he made really good hoods as well. Um, but you get in touch with them and Roger would be away in the Gulf Hawk in Hubara somewhere and Glacier just couldn't be bothered to make hoods anymore, you know. <laughs> so you, you, there was no no option but do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the hoods were very crude looking back on them. In fact, I should have brought one with me to show you today. One of the early hoods that I must have made in 19, in the early 70s, probably 71, 72, uh, and my mum had kept it and she put it in a box and I didn't, re- it didn't even realise my mother had kept it until she died uh, and I was going through some of her personal belongings, you know, wondering what, what we should keep, you know, mementos for the kids and things, you know, of value and sentimental value and there was this box and we opened it up and there was two hoods there that I'd made back in the early 70s and, you know, she must have been so proud of me and she'd kept them hoods. Uh, I'd have thrown them in the bin, they were so bad, but she, she, and looking at them, they were crude, but they, they did the job, you know, they might not look the, the best hood you've ever seen, but they served a purpose. They hooded the bird, they didn't touch his eyes, there was no discomfort on them, and they were easy to use. So, you know, even, the, the, I've seen some really good looking hoods over the years, but when I've seen them on the birds, they've not been that good. Mm-hmm. So just because they look good doesn't mean they are good. No, Sometimes. I totally agree. Like we were talking earlier, it's I um I love whenever a, a hood's very lightweight and the braces are smooth yeah. and they you know tighten and loosen smoothly and yeah and yeah I mean there's so many different things that that go into you know good quality things oh, like that. So yeah, a lot and a lot of people you know. When, I've, when I look at birds that are hooded and photographs and they say, oh, I've got this perfect fitting hood and it, it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that. I'm a hood maker and I know it's not, I know if they're happy with it, well, that's okay. And if the bird's happy with it, well, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 some of them just aren't that good. Uh, but there are some excellent hoods out there as well. And, and a lot of people, you know, the art of hooding birds as well, I, I, it's an art in itself, you know, I see some people who are trying to cram a hood on a bird's head and it's shaking its head this way and the other way and they're getting frustrated and the bird's getting frustrated and the hood's not going to go on its head and, you know, it, it's just pitiful. Uh, they sh- like, you know, anybody who, who knows how to hood a bird, you know, take your time, get it into a darkened room, spray it down, get it damped down so it's it's nice and cool and then just gently, you know, slip, try and get the hood on its on its head or off its head and... You know, I see some people, I'll watch them over this weekend hooding birds and I think, well, you're not too good at this. And yet you see other people who are naturals. Funnily enough, my son, who's not interested in falconry now, he was at an early age. He had a really nice hybrid, our Thomas. But uh, 
as he got older, he found girls and bass guitars, I'm afraid to say, Jonathan. And you know what that leads to, Jonathan, yeah, don't yes, you? Yes, I do. <laughs> so Thomas come out of falconry, uh, even though he sometimes comes out and flies a bird with me. He's in the army now, but when he's at home, he'll come out and watch a bird fly. But Thomas, from an early age, was a, a, a naturally good hooder. Uh, he'd obviously seen me hooding birds for many years, and I'd, I'd basically shown him how to hood the birds. But, you know, I watched him and he, his first kestrel and then the hybrid that he had, uh, and it was like poetry in motion watch how easy that the bird didn't move you know wasn't flicking its head anywhere that hood was slipping on and off its head so so nicely it was like poetry in motion you know and he, he was a good udder uh, and you get some people who aren't naturally good udders and they just never seem to get the technique of hooding birds properly they can hood birds and the birds are okay with it but you know I watch them and I cringe sometimes watching them trying to push the fingers at the back of the bird's nape there to get get the hood on its head so there's a lot to be said about hooding it's an art in itself if you've read any of the old books you know look at the chapter on hooding in Gilbert Blaine's falconry you know excellent chapter on how to hood a bird or even a guy who was really before his time who, who I admire immensely he, he wrote a book called Observations Upon falconry and that was ronald stevens written in a great year 1957 the year i was born funnily enough but <laughs> if you read his chapter on hooding birds and that was a guy who was miles ahead of his time you know he was dealing with which weren't termed as imprints but they were imprints jer falcons that he had and he was hooding them and he, the techniques that he gives he, he writes a chapter on it uh, but that guy he's a guy i'd love to have met because he was way ahead of his time really great person be great if we could go back in time and see some of these guys wouldn't it well it'd be great to go back in time and record a bunch of podcasts with a bunch of them too yeah. but unfortunately you know every passing year we, we lose a lot of those opportunities so well, we've talked about that a little bit yeah. haven't we yeah we did yeah but yeah no i mean it's it's awesome though that guys like yourself have have been so passionate about doing this over the years and you know hood making and and um you know not just hoods but gloves and, and yeah. other you know p pieces of falconry equipment and stuff too because once again like i said i'm terrible at it i i <laughs> have there's no hope for me whatsoever so i hope that more and more people continue to pick it up and yeah. and you know progress with it over time but but um before we run out of time and before we have to go and start doing some other stuff i want to talk to you a little bit about kind of what falconry looks like for you now kind of your just general approach and and you know what a hunt typically looks like for you now and and what type of game uh -huh. you're primarily on and then um you know in with a with a good story or two <laughs> i'll do my best <laughs> really as time goes by and i've reached retirement you know i'm a lot more laid back now about me hawking and what and what i do and what i don't do um and, and all I want to do is, is go out with my friends, fly the TSOs at Partridge, you know, um, get on some decent land, take our time. And, you know, it's as much of a stroll for me nowadays as going hawking. You know, I like to look at the, see what crops are around in the fields, see what other games on there, you know, see, you know, see what 
many meadow pipits or larks, you know, see how the lapwings are doing, uh, you know, have a look on the ponds, see see what ducks are about. This The other problem is, of course, is AI at the moment, you know, that's it's causing a lot of problems hunting ducks in this country. Um, but, you know, just, just a good day out with me, good company, good friends, you know, watch some good dog work, see some, some good TSOs flying fairly high, hopefully, um, and, you know, the kills immaterial, doesn't matter. We we don't go any home with any a partridge in the bag. We can take a couple of potatoes out the field or a couple of carrots, so we're not going to go hungry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just a just a laid back approach. Uh, meeting good friends, uh, having good times, uh, and savouring it. You know, if, if it, over the last two or three years, me and two other friends were sort of. Our, our lives are changing, evolving with, you know, kids growing up and we've got more time on our hands and we're doing this. And we've, re we've rekindled that friendship between the three of us. And that's the best part, the friendship, you know. Uh, good hawks are hard to come by, but good friends are even harder. So you've got to make the most of it. Agreed. Totally agree. Is there anything in particular that you look back on now as being way more experienced in, in your approach to training or, or hunting that you do different now is that you just kind of think back on and cringe or yeah, anything? No, or? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm the new boy now, you see, because all these other guys have got the GPSs and yeah. the drones. So yeah. the, this is something I've got, I'm going to have to learn about because over the last, I'd say the last, what, 10 years, my falconry, I haven't done that much because of commitments at home and to the family i've still gone out into the field and watched friends flying their birds but you know this year i hope to take a tearsel up again um so maybe i'll get one of these drones or you know i've got telemetry obviously but maybe get a gps system i don't know about that um but it, the the recipe i always followed was i would i put young falcons on young game and let them progress naturally with mm. the game and as they get fit, they catch more game. Um, and but you know, looking at these drones and how high they can take the bird into the sky and and everything else, that's something I've got to learn, isn't it? I suppose you know, maybe <laughs> maybe interview me in a couple of years and I'll say, hey, them drones are a waste of time. Made no difference to my bird. Or I might say, hey, Jonathan. These drones are the things. Why didn't we have these 30 years ago? So, so yeah, yeah let's see what unfolds. And hopefully the, the future's bright. The, the area I live, we've been out, you know, spotting. There's a few coveys of greys about. We've got permission off the farmers to go on the land to hunt the birds. Um, so, yeah, if we, if we can go out and have a flight and, you know, if we, if we get a kill, that's good for the falcon. If we don't, we see a spectacular flight, see some good dog working and some good points. That, that'll make me happy. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, it may not even take two years. The first time you try taking up a drone, it might be 10 minutes. You, yeah. might, you might say that I hate this. I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I mean, some, some people take to it and, and love it, and you, you see that you're either going to love it or hate it. So, yeah. you know, but... But I mean, at least you're willing to try, you know, I'll, and, I'll and give it a go. Yeah. Try and adapt. Yeah. But, and if you, you do end up getting the GPS we talked about earlier, you know, you'll, you'll love that advantage you know, for sure. sure it's, will, it's yeah. worth, it's worth its weight in gold. If you know, well, you really want to get your bird quick. So yeah, it, it's gotta be, hasn't it? Like, like we talked about before, you know, 
many years ago when I lost a red Shaheen hawk in, and we didn't have telemetry in them days. We only had a bell on the bird. Uh, and, it, you know, it was like a death in the family, that bird going. I put so much time into it and he was flying so well. Um, but I'm sure with telemetry, I'd have had him back within an hour. So things progress, don't they? As we, as we said before, you know, telemetry... You know, I remember the first telemetry set I got from the States, from FNL Electronics, the Falconer unit was like a brick on your side, <laughs> uh, but it was great. I can remember the first time I, I used it and I'd lost a bird. We were over in a place called North Yorkshire at a field meet at Ripon, uh, and I was flying a Lanaret and I'd lost him, and he, he'd just gone, and he'd gone out of the range of the, 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 the receiver. So we drove around for a bit, and the first time I heard that, Yep. <laughs> and you know that was oh that was the best feeling almost as good as one of my mother's sunday roast dinners that but uh it was good yeah so so that that was good you know telemetry is great but this gps like you say yeah if it can find your bird a lot quicker then it's got to be the thing to do hasn't it yeah it's i mean it, it has its ups and downs just like any form of technology but i mean i've I would never go back at this point. I've gotten gotten too used to the convenience, and <laughs> and there's there's a lot to be said for shaving off, you know, the the hour or two that it would normally take yeah. to find a bird, and down to like you know ten fifteen minutes. You can literally just drive right up, you yeah. know, and just call your bird back. Of course, that doesn't mean that your bird's going to come back, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know that's a whole other different set of you know trouble there. <laughs> so, but. Um, but anyway, well, I think this would be a good time to go ahead and, and end on um, a particular uh, story about a, um, a hunting experience or a bird or something that okay. uh, sticks out in your mind. I know you've been doing this a very long time and there's there's probably lots of hunts and lots of birds, but there's always seems to be one experience or one bird in particular that sticks out in a falconer's mind that's yeah. like their at least up until this point in time is like the the pinnacle for them. So okay, well, there's been a few few flights that I've enjoyed over the years, but I suppose one of the main ones was with my old mentor Paul Fields, who I mentioned earlier had died. Um, it was a September. We both had young Tiersels, Tiersel peregrines, and we were hawking in a, a ground called Banks, which is just on the outskirts of Southport. It was a September day early September, so part, it, partridge season had started. And it was one of them warm winds that was blowing. It was more like mid-August than mid-September. We were in shirt sleeves. Uh, we drove onto the stubble field. Uh, we scanned it with the scope, and we picked up a, a covey of grey partridge. Must have been 10 or 15 birds in the covey. Uh, and Paul said to me, well, you can fly your TSL first. So... We got the we got the dogs out. The old Penny, the old pointer, come on to to point, and then the put was honouring the point. And it was just one of those days when everything come together. I lifted my hand. He he, he roused. Well, I unhooded him, lifted him up. He, he roused, preened, did a poo, then <laughs> took off, uh, and straight away he started to climb. Uh, 
he'd, he had about half a dozen kills under his belt by now, but now he was becoming wed to Partridge. He sort of knew what we wanted him to do. Like, in, you know, when you start off a bird, it, you know, it doesn't exactly know that you want it to go up to 500 feet and come down and catch this Partridge. But we got there and he started mounting. He was getting up to a good pitch. It was a good day. He, he got into a bit of a thermal and went higher and higher. And it, we, we, we've never had spectacularly high flying birds because we we hawk in small fields so if they, if they go up to a thousand feet or 1500 feet by the time they get down the partridge have made it to cover usually so but anyway we we got him up uh and we brought him back overhead the pointers were vibrated and we sent them in and they flushed this covey of about 15 or 20 birds and greys are different to red partridge red partridge don't explode into the earth they flush in ones or twos but this it was just a mass explosion uh, and he folded up and we watched him dropping down and dropping down and you could hear the impact that mm. as his bell hit as he struck the partridge knocked it over he threw up and he come down uh, and he, he made into it and we walked across the field you know and we, we laid the dogs down by his side and we took a photograph of him on this first real partridge he'd, he'd taken, his proper partridge. And uh, we just looked at each other and we, we sort of said, well, it doesn't get much better than this. <laughs> we went back to the Range Rover and we had a glass of whiskey and we went home. Very nice. Very nice. Well, that's awesome. Like I said, it's uh, especially when you're incorporating dogs and, yeah. and other aspects of your of your team, and and when everything comes together, there really oh, isn't yeah. much better. Yeah, that that was one. Of, that was the thing. It come together. You know, everything was good. The weather was good. The tearsaw was at the right weight and in good condition. The dogs worked well. Uh, it was a lovely field. We were on a stubble field. Saw the flight perfectly, and yeah, it, it sort of made 30 years of falconry come together on that day and think, yeah, this is the sport. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I think then I would like to end on a, a note that I've been kind of um, asking this one particular question at the end of, of these recordings to people, especially experienced guys like yourself. And is there any uh, pearl of wisdom or any piece of advice, lasting advice that you'd like to pass on to other generations that are listening? Well, one bit of advice would be if your bird isn't coming along as well as it should be, don't walk out of your muse and headbutt the wall. That's, <laughs> that's for sure. Cause that doesn't get you nowhere. It's a, uh, no, not really. Just, you know, just enjoy what you're doing. It's, um, It'll come together. Keep at it. You know, if you want to do something and you've got a passion for it, do it. Also, you know, treat other, treat everybody the same. You know, other other falconers who who you might disagree with, or you know, like that, like the guy who told me about the new technique. Try this with the sake of falcon. Well, listen to advice. You know, fifty years on, and more than likely this weekend I'll be asking you about GPS systems. <laughs> Take advice. Any advice is good advice. Yeah, well, I agree. And um, I think on that note, that would be the perfect time to, uh, or this would be the perfect time to go ahead and end things. And um, I mean, it's been great. I'm sure we'll we'll get a chance to, to hang out some more and talk some more as the weekend progresses. But I, I hope you sell the hell out of a lot of hoods this weekend. <laughs> and I hope you make out like a bandit. And I mean, I, I, I can say that 
I'm very impressed by the quality of your hoods. I'm definitely am going to have to figure out some kind of arrangement that I can get at least one or two from you before the end of the weekend. But if anyone is interested in getting hoods from you, how can they go about acquiring them from you? Well, at the moment, I only do hoods by word of mouth. I'm mm-hmm. making them for friends. If if they come down to one of the shows that I'm at, you know, now I'm retired, I'll I'll have hoods available, but mostly words of mouth. Most people in this country know me as a hood maker, so. Gotcha. So no, uh, so no email not, or no or no, no website. No, email. no you, you don't you don't want to be too busy, right? You actually like being quote unquote retired, I so like to speak. Being, right? I like being retired. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, fair enough. Well, thanks again, Steve, so much for your time. Hey, and thank, thanks for asking me, Jonathan. It's yeah, been great no, chatting. Yeah, this has been awesome, and um, I think people are going to enjoy it. And like I said, I mean, it's uh, it's always a, a pleasure meeting new people with these things and getting a chance to sit down and do this. So thank you again. And thank you. We'll go and have a beer. Uh, Yes, we will.